Rioso, and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 200. Questions and answers, hopefully. How is everybody doing today? This is the very first time we've done this as a live stream on uh, the YouTube channel first. We'll be uploading, of course, as usual on Monday on the podcast. So for those of you listening after the fact, welcome. Uh, I will be answering questions that were sent in by yourselves and by members of chat if they have additional questions that I can answer. Um, I will try and do that as well. So, so yeah, I figured uh, let's um, just kind of get things going early on here and uh, we'll kind of go from there and see what everybody thinks and uh, we'll uh, hopefully have this all sorted out. So let me just... Um, Bring in the questions and we'll uh, get started, I guess. Hey, sorry. Uh, for those of you watching on YouTube earlier, we had a bit of a bit of a funny moment, but um, that was my fault. Okay, so we'll bring that back online. There we go. Then we just quickly transition. Bam. Hello. Okay. All right. Here we are. So I wanted to start out by kind of diverting the questions around a bit rather than have them all be about history, because there were some that came in that were specifically about the podcast, some that came out asking questions about history of Wales, and I kind of wanted to hopefully switch back and forth, make them kind of interesting. And so I initially thought about putting everybody's name, but there was multiple questions from different people, so I didn't want to kind of have one question from one person and four questions from a different person. So... I have removed the names, but I've kept the questions, and every question I received, I believe, I have selected, so <clears throat> I didn't get any that I didn't think I could answer, or at least make a decent attempt answering. So, let's start off with the first question, which is, who is the greatest Welsh figure you have learned about? This is a difficult one to start with, but I wanted to start with it because I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, a character in history i know i've mentioned this on the podcast in the past who is meaningful to me as a person of welsh descent who has ancestry and relatives that still live there today and that would be owen glindur uh reason being is that because he was one of the first people i really learned about back when i was a teenager and i first started to really learn about wales you have to understand that growing up um we didn't really talk about Wales that much. It was kind of like said in passing in my household. My dad hardly ever talked about it. If he did, it was just kind of brushed on. Um, but for me, I knew a little bit about it, enough to ask my grandfather about how you pronounce my name in Welsh. Of course, him being him, uh, he promptly just said my name back to me with a slight accent to kind of make me think it was all fancy. But... Uh, that was kind of how, when my grandfather got to Canada, he decided the Welsh language wasn't worth continuing to learn, which is why I know nothing about it. And my first introduction to the Welsh language, sorry, I'll go back to the greatest figure, but I just wanted to brush on this real quick. For those that wonder why I'm so terrible at pronouncing things in Welsh, my first introduction to the Welsh language was written, and that was as a teenager, and my learning of it came out of a book about the Welsh language, trying to pick and work things together based on that with no real guidance outside of, well, it sort of sounds like this. 
Um, so I always struggled to kind of get it right. Then when we lived in Wales in the 2000s, I did take a couple of Welsh language courses, but unfortunately, due to the work I had at the time, because I worked nights, it was difficult to stick to, and I just, I just never kept up with it, and it quickly vanished out of my brain, so much so that I still had words that I didn't understand what they actually meant. I thought they meant one thing, they turned out they meant something else. Uh, example of that is wedi blino, which means tired. Uh, I thought it meant rainy, so there you go. <laughs> So over the years, I've kind of tried to, to reintegrate myself with it and try and relearn, especially because one thing I hear over and over again about the podcast is people, especially in the early part of the podcast, where my pronunciations are all over the map and not very good, um, you know, querying or trying to correct me up to five years after the fact. And I have to politely, hopefully, uh, express that, yes, I'm learning. Um, and I'm trying to get better at it every day. So I am trying to take Welsh learning online and kind of pick up bits and pieces, trying to pronounce things a little better because it was frustrating me at how bad it would be sometimes. And a lot of times we'll talk about how that affects the podcast in a bit because there is a question that talks about the podcast in that relation. Um, but to go back to the figure that I... I Greatest figure, I think, is, is a difficult one to kind of go on because there's lots of great figures in Welsh history, people who have meant a lot to Wales either because they kept alive the language, they helped print books and educated the masses in the language so that it didn't die out in the 1700s when it easily could have. You know, you think all you have to think about is is what's happened in Scotland specifically with the Scottish Gaelic language and how that's kind of transitioned from being almost completely not used at all to coming back to a degree. And it's only really been in the last, you know, few years that it's, it's picking up pace, but or Cornish would be another one where the language actually almost went extinct. You know, those, those things could have easily happened in Wales and without someone actively working to make sure that we have printed books and and teaching people how to read this is why i stressed the last couple of episodes a lot about that over i guess the last 20 episodes because to me that's key to how the culture survives as a culture instead of a quaint idea because people are actively trying to continue learning continue to grow the culture of welsh history of welsh language of welsh society beyond it being just something that only certain people spoke so that more and more people would use it. And not only that, that it would become the first form of literacy for a lot of people. This, we'll talk a little bit about how it flips later, but that's a big key in the 1700s. So for me, that was one of the things I really wanted to touch on. So some of the people there would, could easily be considered some of the greatest heroes uh, the reason why Owen Glyndor is, like I said, it's the first person I, I learned about in Welsh history, really. And he was the first person who I really connected with because his his attempt to try and make the country separate of England to actually advance it as a a singular nation, I think, had the best possibility of success i'm not saying it could have succeeded but that 
of all the attempts that were made before and after, I think his was the best attempt to do that and could have worked given the right set of circumstances. It just didn't. Um, and because of that, of course, you have the aftermath and you have a hundred years of basically the entire country being ravaged from war and having to recover. So, so it depends on your point of view, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. But my son, one of my sons, I should say, is named Owen in his honor. So, or Owen. Uh, and so I guess that tells you all you really need to know. <laughs> we did not name one of our kids Llewellyn. Llewellyn. Uh, so there's that. All right. So we'll move on to the next question, shall we? All right. What is your preparation like for each show? Has it been similar since the start or has it evolved over time? It has definitely evolved over time. My preparation for the show in the early days was based a lot on what I already knew um, because in Welsh history, I had taken a lot of courses uh, in Roman history, in early British history. I had done a lot of reading and I had a lot of material that I just kind of knew off my top of my head. Uh, so it was a little bit easier to create those scripts. That's why, uh, in some cases there isn't a lot of script to go on because basically I just made talking points for myself to go with. And sometimes of course, as I'm sure it's noted by some people, it gets a bit rambly because I'm not focused as much as I am now. Now, because we're entering periods, especially post independence that I don't know very well, I'm much more meticulous about them. And I spend a lot more time writing the scripts. It takes days sometimes to, to work on them. And what I mean days, I mean a few hours, but still it's, it's, it's not a case of I start all the time, you know, the day before record, you know, episode. And it's one of the difficulties with history podcasts, unlike other podcasts where you can kind of just wing it. You can't really wing it with a history podcast. You get called out. People know. People understand that you just don't know what you're talking about. And there are times when I don't know what I'm talking about. And I've caught myself saying stuff that later I wish I had not said. Not like massive oops, but there was a couple of times where there was an oops that I, I wanted to correct. Or another thing that happens is later discoveries that'll come years down the road change the interpretation of something that seemed like it was a particular interpretation, but in the end didn't need to be that. So archaeology, it's found something a little different, you know. A lot of the talk about uh, genealogy and specifically about DNA has changed quite a bit from the time when I think I first recorded discussions about that. And I think that's been in and will continue to grow. So you can't know for sure. You know, it's much like people writing at the beginning of the last century had a very different opinion on what the so-called Celtic culture was and how it worked and who who was sort of involved with it. So a lot of Welsh culture and understanding continues to change and grow as we get more information. Now, another thing that, that was a part... So to kind of go back and explain a little bit, when I do my research, if I have a pretty good idea what topic I'm going to cover, then I focus in on the book's... Uh, I usually have one book that kind of covers a broad spectrum of things. Uh, currently, I am using uh, John Davies' uh, History of Wales. It's a large book that I've bought a number of years ago that's kind of a general overview. 
and it's good. It's old because it's like from the eighties, I think the original edit, but it still has enough that you can kind of make a go of things. Um, and it definitely has that opinion, which you have to be aware of. Like a lot of times during history, uh, it's not as straightforward as you think because historians have changed opinions. The angles they use and the thought process they have can be colored by their political opinion, by their ideas about the social history. All of those things, you know, can change. Like if you look at a Victorian historian, they're going to be very focused on men. They're going to be very focused on, you know, the big man theory, the idea that there was one particular figure in history who influences everything, which still really we have today. I mean, just think about the people in history that we think affected history and how influential they are. You can talk even about Owen Glendior. In the beginning, was the rebellions that he took responsibility for and became sort of the focal point, did they start because he started them or did they start on their own and kind of came to focus on him as a central point because he was more successful than some of the others? Those are the kind of things that you can kind of talk about and they're hard to pin down. And historians argue about this all the time. Another big thing that was huge in the 60s, for example, is Marxist theory. So you had theories about, you know, interpreting history versus various different ways. So you have to kind of, when you're reading these books, you sort of have to keep that interpretation in mind and keep in mind that things will not always be the same from year to year. Quite often I try and find newer, uh, so as I'm trying to come up with what I'm writing about, I will try and look for newer articles from journals that are more frequently or more recent, sort of like 2010 and newer, sometimes just 2000 and newer. And uh, I use a website called JSTOR for that. You can get access to it for free, um, but it's helpful when you have kids in college because then you can access it for free, but you actually get to download articles and read them in full sometimes. And sometimes you get access to different things as well, which is kind of handy. Um, but that access is very helpful because it gives you a more modern take you'll have interpretations change over time as i said so all of that will will definitely affect it and so that's one of the ways that i generally do and i also usually have books that i bought in the last few years to try and uh, help with that um, because so often i don't know the history well enough like we're getting into a period of of welsh history i don't know I, I know bits and very small pieces, but like if you're talking about coal and how the coal mines worked or how influential Merthyr Tidfil was on Wales, I'm not real solid on that, for example. You know, the development of uh, the labor movement in Wales is not something I'm very familiar about, or the Labour Party, for example. So all of those things that are coming up I have to read about because I don't know them. I don't necessarily understand them well enough. And I try very hard to make sure that at least I can give it a high school level overview. Because that's the thing. I mean, this podcast is not geared towards being highly academic. I'm not trying to make it too difficult to understand or talk too granularly about things that people won't necessarily always understand or be interested in. The idea is to give you sort of a high school level overview or to put it in English terms to, to or 
English terms into British terms, you know, give it a, a year 10 kind of level. Um, I want to keep it focused in a way that, that makes it, um, or college level. I guess that's a better description. To me, I want that to be easy enough that anybody can pick it up and listen to it and understand what's going on and not feel like they're overwhelmed with a lot of information. Sometimes that's the way history is. You just, you do get a lot of information flowing in. So you have to sort of be aware of that. But at the same time, I, I just look at it from the standpoint of, I don't want people to think that, uh, I am, you know, I'm super, super knowledgeable. I'm not, uh, I, I rely upon professors who have studied this their whole lives or at least most of their careers because they actually understand it. Now, one part of the, so there's two other parts of this process that I need, need to mention. One is, is if I'm stuck with kind of trying to th understand what's going on, I will actually go to Wikipedia and look up like years and kind of come up with because you can go through Wales by uh, centuries and by decades, and, and you can kind of look at that, and it'll give you an idea of, oh, this person was around, and you go, oh, who's that? And then you can go search them up in other categories and other fields and other websites and other books, and then you get a much better idea of who this character was and how they affected history. Uh, or they do have sometimes events that happen. So that those are the kind of ways that you can kind of use something like Wikipedia to supplement your research. Never end with it but you can always start with it because it will give you places to look. Keep in mind that the, that the references are typically old, but if you can get a name or two, you can work from there and sort of build out. So, so it does help, um, but never trust it as a final source for things. You know, it's, it's shaky. And I will say the one other website that I did use a long time ago that I've actually walked away from was academic edu because originally that seemed like a free way to get access to journals. What I've come to now understand is it's a free way to get access to people's essays, usually from, uh, from uh, universities when they were in undergraduate. So some of their research is not great. And there was at least one piece of research that I do not remember now, which was in an old podcast, which I got from that, which turned out to be totally backwards. And I didn't understand that or know that at the time. And somebody called me out on it later. So you have to be careful about sources, but that's definitely what I try and do. And typically, um, because I started out doing everything weekly and I found that it was becoming increasingly difficult to keep up. So because my real life is busy, I have a family, I have everything going on. So what I've always done is I, I did take breaks at times, but now... I wanted to make it so that I'd still have the momentum to do it and have the time to do the research. So that's the reason why it only comes out every twice a week, every not twice a week, uh, bi-weekly, so that it gives me time to do the research possible. Sometimes it becomes a bit like writing essays at university. You're cramming at the very end. Like, like on the Saturday before I need to record, I'm busily writing, and then Sunday I'm busily writing, and... And uh, hopefully I've done the research. Sometimes I'm doing the research as I'm writing. So it, it is kind of depends on how busy I've been and, and the million other things that are going on. But I do try to make sure that doesn't happen too often. Uh, but it does happen. I can't deny that. That's for sure.
If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. This one is a bit of a difficult question to answer. What is 
Wales' greatest contribution to the world? I thought a lot about this, and I'm sure everybody's answer will be different um, if you know anything about Wales. Uh, it can be as something as silly as their flag to something as meaningful as the, you know, the poetry and language that they've given the world, which offers uh, a window into a culture that isn't modern. You know, like Wales is an ancient language. It's based on Brythonic, which was probably based on the Bronze Age and Iron Age languages that came before them. So it has a very ancient history. The people that live in Wales, uh, in certain parts of Wales specifically, are ancient pe people living there. So the DNA of the country hasn't changed for millennia. Um, the archaeology that you can do there is so vast and so overarching through so many different possibilities that you can't even begin to to address everything and, and know everything you know there, there are finds from the stone age there's finds from you know before man there's finds from going up to now that people continue to discover and that's something that if you live in North America like I do, that doesn't happen very often. You frequently, you know, other than, say, dinosaurs, there's not loads of evidence to find in North America just because populations were different, how they, they, they didn't have settled culture in a lot of areas, so they didn't have, like, easily found locales. And, of course, because Wales was invaded over and over again, it's influenced by different cultures and different societies. So I think that in and of itself contributes to a larger whole. Um, I think the other thing it does is it shows that you can still thrive and still survive even when you are, you know, for lack of a better word, colonized and you have for centuries basically been dominated by one society and one culture and you have ways that you can still continue to show your ability to grow and strengthen yourself in that process. I think the biggest thing I guess I would say is the strength of the people to survive under the circumstances culturally and with language in ways that I don't think anybody could have predicted or thought would happen. And certainly the English didn't think would happen <laughs> if we're blunt. So I think that's something that I look at as being very laudable. And I guess if you want to call it the greatest contribution, I guess you could call it that. I would call it, you know, a, a definitely a contribution to the world because without it, so much of what we understand about language and about culture would be lesser because of it, I think. And one could also argue, because of that, a lot of the myths that came out of the the ancient past and into the you know post Roman period that we still talk about to this day have their roots in Wales. And I think that's another thing that that I think people need to understand and need to uh, kind of come to grips with. So I, I again, I'm not going to like hit and say, yeah, this is definitely it, but I do think culture is probably one of the biggest things I would point to. All right, next question. Today, I want to give a shout out to uh, the sponsor of today's podcast, Caldera Lab. Caldera Lab offers you an opportunity 
if you're like me and you're getting older and you're finding your black spots under the eyes or wrinkles around and laugh lines, things that might bother you as you're aging and make you feel like you are older than you really are, Caldera Lab has formulated a number of products to help with that and to help make your day easy and simple. Their regime includes three products, including the Clean Slate, the Base Layer, and the Good. Clean Slate starts and ends your day. It's a face wash to help refresh your skin. Base Layer is a daily moisturizer to hydrate your skin. And the Good is the go-to multifunctional serum at night, which helps your skin look tighter and smoother, helps reduce the visibility of wrinkles and fine lines. And the Caldera Lab Icon Eye Serum addresses the three common skin concerns around the eye, fine lines, dark circles, and puffiness, which I know I've had quite often. It is a leader in men's skin care and made only with top ingredients and clinical trials have found that 94% of men's skin showed an overall younger look in appearance after using Caldera Labs for just a few weeks. We have a special exclusive offer. If you use the code WelshHistoryPod, all one word, at calderalab.com, you will get 20% off right now. Get 20% off with the code WelshHistoryPod at calderalab.com and make an unforgettable first impression that leads to the charming words, you look younger. If you had access to a DeLorean time machine car, uh, which era of Welsh history would you choose to visit firsthand? I've thought about this because I kind of went, I don't know. And I know what I would do if it was world history, but this is simply being selfish. I would go to somewhere like uh, the Library of Alexandria and then just spend like as long as I could uh, sneaking my camera out to photograph every single scroll to make sure I had copies of them going forward. Um, I think I would like to be in sort of that post-Roman period as long as I could go back after the end of the day um, to kind of see whether or not things went the way they're described or thought of, whether or not there was sort of a... How do I want to put this? An example of society, like how influential were the Irish in Wales? Did the Irish basically dominate Wales, especially on the coastlines of the south and the north? How influential was Anglo-Saxons and how interrelated were they? Were the chiefs and the kings that are mentioned by various sources such as Gildas even remotely accurate? Did they have influence? How did it work? What was society like? All of those things would be amazing. Of course, I wouldn't understand a blessed thing they're saying, which would be a bit of a problem. But if we're just talking about going back one day and just having a look around, that would be, I guess, what I would do. And I would go into, probably into uh, some of the monasteries and try and track down every document, you know, have a look and have a peep at, what's there so that other people could look at it who understand it better. Because you forget just how much was lost. You know, we, we really don't know how much writing we've missed out on because of this. And it's unfortunate. Like, we don't even know for sure, as an example, the name of whether or not a guy named Nennius actually wrote a history of Wales at all. 
we don't even know if it's a legitimate history or just a bunch of myth making. We we there's just so many things that we would love answers to that you're just never gonna find out unless we suddenly find an equivalent to the Dead Sea Scrolls floating around. And as we know in Britain, that was very, very difficult to do. I mean, we've been lucky in some of the things that have been found, especially with bogs and things preserving stuff. But that's literally what we'd have to find. We'd have to find scrolls just stuffed in some airless place that could survive. But a waterlogged scroll is not going to last very long. So that's, I guess, where I would go if I was to say, if I had to pick one, just because of how little we know. All right. Have you regretted starting this podcast? I kind of laughed when I read this initially. I'm laughing now because it's kind of a funny question, but it's it's fair, fair point. Uh, have I have I regretted ever? Um, there was a point where I was very stressed out because of various other things that it became like difficult, and I had to take a break from the podcast for about a month and a half just to kind of get my head back in the game because I got very well, and the other problem was initially I wasn't sure I would go beyond the end of independence for the podcast. I was thinking I might stop there. And so because of that, I didn't know kind of what I wanted to do. I didn't have a good idea. I didn't have enough material to work with yet at that point. So I've become better at that. I, I kind of look ahead and try and find stuff in the... um University of Wales Press to kind of give myself an opportunity to buy books ahead of time. But at that point, yeah, that was that was a big question mark. And that, you know, it isn't regretting so much as being worn out. Um, and taking that time off gave me the ability to come back to the podcast and, and make the changes I needed to make to make it worth doing and make it successful for you guys. Because I don't want you guys to think that... Um, that I'm ignoring the podcast or not putting the right amount of research in. All right. Now this question came in and said, they'd like to know more about the Tudor influence on the English crown and why it didn't really last long or do more for Wales or so it seems. So my interpretation based on everything I read is that the reason why I would argue that the Tudors didn't influence things in a Welsh positive way necessarily. And I mean, that's arguable. Some people would argue it did work out okay. But, you know, that there wasn't more Welsh influence, that it didn't become more dominated by Welsh ideals. I think the the, the problem here is, is that at that point, the Tudors that we think of are not the Tudors that were Welsh only. They had been dominated with intermarriage. I don't mean dominated by a bad thing. It's just that because of intermarriage amongst the various gentry, there was a lot of Norman influence. There was a lot of uh, English influence in the family. And because they were gentry, a lot of the focus at the time and going for many, many hundreds of years after that was centered around the English ideals and the English culture, or in this case, the Norman culture, because keep in mind, they ended up going over to France for quite a long time in exile away from Edward IV. So when Henry VII comes back and takes charge, 
he is no longer a Welsh king, if he ever was one. And one could argue that they really weren't Welsh, basically since Henry's grandfather. And so I think with Jasper and Henry, they were already tilting away from that. Like there was some, some lip service given. Uh, there was the naming of his, his heir, Arthur, linking back to the old Welsh traditions. But let's be honest, it was also a French story by then. So it kind of works both ways. He, you know, he landed in Wales and appeared and appealed to the Welsh to help him in the war. But I mean, the Welsh had been sort of used as a military for underfunded or under soldiered troops for many years before and many years after. So I think that's part of the problem. The other issue is at the end of the day, is that they became English kings and queens. And so we're dominated by the English culture, the English language, and the English ideals, which were very much centered around the concept that England was the key nation. And Wales was sort of the afterthought. And I think that when you get to Henry VIII and Elizabeth, I just don't think there was the same sort of links. And of course, by the Stuarts, even though they have Tudor ancestry, they're also married into the Scottish kingdoms. And then that link gets even longer as you get into like guys like William of Orange and his Studer, Studer? His Stuart bride. There, there wasn't a really, you know, Queen Anne and, and all that. The links are already broken at that point. So you haven't got loads of time that these links continued. It was a hundred years. And by, I would argue, Henry VIII, they really, you know, his biggest contribution was the Welsh Act. And that came about in part as a way to help the gentry in Wales. It had nothing to do with helping Wales as such. It was about keeping the gentry, which was typically a part of those contributing to rebellion, on side, and we have to remember that after war, after war, after war, after war, after war, the amount of Welsh landed gentry that were still around who were not influenced by the English gentry was very slim, and it was growing lower and lower each day, and that's just the way it would work out. So I think that's why, largely, it doesn't continue to influence beyond Maybe I would argue Henry the Seventh, and even him, it's it's dubious. I actually think Owen, his grandfather, is the last one who really had Welsh ties of any strength. Henry's only real connection to Wales was very short during his time when he was in exile in uh, in the south of west of Wales, and then he quickly ended up into France, and after that, you know, he didn't really participate in Wales as a Welsh person, and so maybe didn't necessarily even understand what was going on there. So I think that's what you have to keep in mind. The Tudors didn't come to power as Welsh kings and queens. It's just the Welsh population that saw them as that, and I think that's the problem. Right, moving on. Apart from the show, what other hobbies and interests keep you busy? So I'm a huge sports fan. Some would say nerd. Uh, I watch a lot of sports. I watch sports around the world. I watch the Welsh rugby. Let's not talk about that too much. Uh, 
I watched the uh, Welsh uh, men play in the World Cup. Uh, I try and catch football slash soccer matches, but I don't get a lot of chance of that. I watch a lot of football, hockey, baseball. So that's that's a big part. Other things are like entertainment related. Star Wars, for example, big, big giveaway. Um, and stuff like that, popular culture kind of things I'm interested in. I read a lot. Um, my job's a political one, so I read a lot of different political websites about different things, but uh, mostly, thankfully, I am not into in politics. I am strictly just uh, researching stuff. So <laughs> it's it's good that way. But for me, that's kind of where I'm at. I, I kind of focus on those kind of things and doing stuff with my kids, and that's kind of where most of my attention is right now and and uh and doing streaming has been something i haven't done for a number of years although i'm kind of winding that down so we'll see how much i do that kind of thinking about doing more of it here but we'll see how that goes we'll see how this is received really all right question continue question number eight welsh history is dominated by men and at what point did women start to appear in the country's history for something other than childbearing? That is a difficult question because it's very accurate that there is no... Like, I think back, and even if you think of Nast, who's considered to be Princess Nast, is considered to be a very well-known Welsh woman, she's still mostly known because of her ancestry. It's mostly the ancestry that kept it going. That's why they made such a big deal about her. Um... And a lot of, like, you look at Henry VII's uh, lineage and his mom. His mom had a lot to do with him. Uh, but, again, was that because she was important or an outlier? That's the question. And, you know, you look in Wales, like, even you think of Owen Glyndor, his wife didn't really get written about, talked about much. I mean, she was named. That was about it. Uh, most of the kings, you didn't even know who they were married to. Um, and most of them are known because of whom they were attached to, like Llewellyn the Great's, you know, wife was the daughter of John, you know, King John, and that's mostly what we knew about her, even though there is some suspicion that she was involved in trying to broker treaties with the English. It's, it comes down to it's who's writing the history, and up until recent past, it's largely been men. And so women get, as they do with most histories, shunted aside, and they're kind of an afterthought. And does that change? Yeah, absolutely it does. Uh, it changes in the 1800s as women get involved with more things like uh, talking about, um, you know, the suffragette movement and working towards things of that nature, the temperance movements that go on in North America as an example of that. But also, you can look in, and I did do an episode where I brought an example of a woman who was, who was a, a big into the philosophy and sciences uh, a few episodes back, and I think that's... Um, I think it's key to at least give the opportunity for women to shine when they are not necessarily the center point because they aren't the center point. It's like minorities. 
like we haven't really done a lot on minorities yet. I do want to do more and we will get a chance to do more in the coming days and weeks as we start to move into this period of time where immigration starts to happen a lot more frequently and you get migrants coming from the Caribbean, migrants coming from India, migrants coming from all over the world back into Wales and kind of how their influence affects the country. So all of that needs to be covered and I and I feel and have felt very strongly that that I need to do a better job of covering women's history in Wales. So I've been going out of my way to try and buy or find material that kind of covers some of that. But if you're talking medieval history, you're not going to find it because they were not the focus. And most of the people writing were religious people who didn't care about women enough to write about them unless it was in the perception of who they gave birth to or didn't give birth to, as the case may be. So... Yeah, I guess that's my my comment is that modern history does a better job of it because modern historians are more interested in it. And so unfortunately that means that we get cut off about the point where there's sort of a male dominated writing field which you don't have to go very far back to find. Uh question 9. Of the topics you've covered so far, are there specific ones you that have surprised you or changed the most from your original assumptions. Um, there's stuff that's changed, but I think it's changed because it, my evaluations of it changed. They didn't really change during the podcast. Although I will say, I, I say that, but, um, but I didn't realize, for example, that Wales was actually fairly literate in the 1700s and that it was literate in Welsh. That, kind of blew my mind and I think that was that was a wonderful discovery that I didn't expect. I knew Welsh was, you know, the predominant language of, of most of the non-gentry population, but I didn't know that it was also the dominant uh, written language and written and read language, which I think that was an amazing find for me personally. Obviously it probably isn't a find for everybody, but but for me that was a big big part of my learning curve. I was, however, years and years ago, very much in the anti-Anglo-Saxon, Wales is Celtic standpoint of things. And, and one thing with doing the podcast, but even before that, is learning more and more about what British culture is and was. Like, you know, learning that there wasn't necessarily an easy, discernible divide between the two and that, that it happened over time. It happened by you know, cultural shift more than it happened by an invasion. And I think that was interesting to learn as well. But that was something I had started learning long before that. So for me, that was that was a, an amazing little side benefit. One of the benefits of the university that I was at is we did Early Modern Europe as, as a, a course that you could take. And I took a couple of courses in it. And so stuff that happens in the like 16th and 17th and 18th century it covered in that period. So that is a period I'm very familiar with by comparison to some of the others. So that helped because I could kind of go through and, and focus in on specific things rather than on, you know, the other thing I think I've learned as I've done Welsh history is how sadly there isn't a lot, you know, it was, it was very much, I mean, one of the reasons why I started the podcast is I felt like it, Wales was very underserved 
in podcasts that I had been listening to, not realizing that it was underserved, not because the person didn't want to cover them, but rather because there just wasn't a lot to go on. Unless you want to go on fictional mythology, there isn't like evidence. <laughs> so it, it's very difficult to kind of cover whales in certain periods because there's just massive gaps. And unfortunately, that leads to basically covering whales via England, um, which is not great. Not going to lie. I don't like doing that. But at the same time, you sometimes you have to because it at least gives you something uh, you can talk about and kind of discuss with people. So that's why you'll find there was a point where I was getting very into the English kings and kind of what was going on there because it was affecting whales a lot. But there wasn't a lot informationally in Wales because people weren't writing about it. Right. So this is the last question I have. Uh, and this is another negative question, which I found kind of funny. Um, have you ever regretted starting this podcast? No, I've never regretted starting the Welsh History Podcast. I There's a lot of things I might regret. Um, but in my mind, I think as I said, I saw there was a, I want to say hole, is that the right word? I saw that there was a point where coverage of Welsh history was underserved. And I really felt like we were seeing a disservice because of this. I think we needed to see more being done and I am noticing now that there is more and more out there you can go on YouTube and there are people who are covering Welsh history from different aspects which I think are are great and and I think contributing to the overall sense of Welsh history is something that we need more of not less of so from that aspect it's it's wonderful to see that happening but when I started there was not a Welsh history there was you know, a, a, I think it was a 10-part series by the BBC back in 2012 where they did, like, a very large kind of, as my boss always says, the 30,000-foot level view of Welsh history where they just kind of covered everything really briefly. You know, you got basically Roman history in the first episode, and then you got English you know, English invasion in the second episode. Yeah, yeah it, it, just everything was so fast. And so it wasn't thorough and it as well-researched as it might have been. It wasn't covering whales in any particular degree. So between that and between listening to others who were doing other histories, which included whales, and finding that it kind of left out whales as a topic past a certain point, I got very frustrated with it. So... No, I've never regretted doing it just simply because I think I've always felt like it was something needed. And the only time where I kind of sit there and kind of go, hmm, about the podcast is not from the podcast and it's not from most listeners, but there's the occasional person that, you know, will say like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Why are you even doing this? Blah, blah, blah. And you're kind of like, why don't you go back to North American history and that kind of stuff? Or American history. That was my favorite one. Um, without understanding why I started the podcast and, and why I feel like it's it's something that we need to have. Wales 
needs res to be respected as a culture and as a history and it provides so much to the world we mentioned earlier that I think you can't you'll never understand it without understanding how it got there and, and what it is and so often in in our world nowadays that's very difficult and what we learn in school we don't usually remember I know I took history it's a version of history at school and I don't remember 90% of what I was taught in high school so why would you expect people to remember that and their interests are different you know I I, know I have listeners who tell me I don't really like the religious stuff and it's like well Sometimes it's going to be in there because sometimes it was very influential. Sometimes we talk a lot about wars. Sometimes we talk a lot about family and we talk about higher level things where we cover whales as a population instead of whales as a specific person. You know, I, I try and balance the two sides because otherwise it becomes too much dominated by one aspect or the other. And I think that's something we need to be careful of as people talking about history i wouldn't call myself a historian but for people talking about history that's that's something that they should keep in mind and i guess my final point about this all is is, is i have always wanted to do a history book and a welsh history book at that looking at um the medieval periods looking at that time in history where wales had massive influence you know, it didn't consider itself Wales at that point. It was basically Britain, and they considered themselves British. And how that kind of worked out. And I think that kind of stuff is fascinating, which is why I like it, and one of the reasons why, again, I wanted to do the podcast. So for me, that's always going to be something I'm going to try and consider and do, and I'm hopeful that over time... I will give it the right level of coverage that people will walk away and feel like, okay, maybe it was weak on this subject or weak on that subject. But for the most part, you know, however many episodes this ends up being, um, it will be considered well covered and people can come and listen at any point in time and still be able to access it and use it and comment and continue to be a part of the discussion, which is what I appreciate. So with all of that said and done, I think I would like to end here. I'd like to thank you all for listening today and watching, uh, whether it was with us in the chat, whether it was through uh, listening to the podcast, which you all do so magnificently. I should mention that we are very close to hitting half a million downloads, which blows me away. And I really appreciate that. I, you know, I hope you're getting value from the podcast and that you continue to want to contribute to it through your listening and, you know, through sharing it with others, because I, I hope it's offering something for people and that it's not just sort of perceived as being this Canadian guy, you know, talking about our history. Because that's, that's not what I, I want it to be seen as. I want it to be seen as being respectful. Even if I struggle with pronunciation, even if I struggle sometimes with saying things correctly, that it will be 
understood that that's through an attempt to still get it right. And I continue every day to try and correct and get correct what I'm doing. And uh, I do appreciate the occasional corrections. They are, they are something I take on board. And sometimes I do try and correct it. And sometimes I still go back and make the same mistake over and over and over again. And I try to get better on it. So I hope you will stick with it. Stick with me. We're about to enter into the 1800s. We're about to go on a crazy ride through a number of different topics. And uh, I will give you a sneak peek into the next one. It, we're talking about mining. Yay. <laughs> I can remember for some of you, that was that was something you wanted to know about way back when, when I was still in the middle of the Middle Ages. Uh, and I had to go, well, they're not mining at the moment, really. But yeah, with all that said and done, thank you guys all for watching and listening. Thank you for being a part of this podcast. Thank you for supporting this podcast like you do through the donations I get through Patreon, through um, you know putting up with the ads that have been on it lately. It, it does mean a lot to me. It helps fund the podcast. It helps keep me going because purchasing these books, while they are useful, in can be expensive and so that's one of the biggest things i use patreon money for is to try and continue the research and continue to access as many documents as i feasibly can to help with the research to make it as good as possible and with all of that said and done thank you once again have yourselves a great day take care and we'll see you later welsh history podcast is a member of the evergreen podcast network to find more information on them you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com thanks for listening hello everyone my name is tom kearns and i host the anglo-saxon england podcast where i cover the history and culture of england from the departure of the romans in the fifth century to the norman conquest in 1066 so far we've surveyed the collapse of roman rule in britain the migration of the anglo-saxons and the history of northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of viking raiders in the ninth century i hope you'll come and give it a go